Hello and welcome to the Good Friends of Jackson Elias, a regular podcast about Call of Cthulhu, horror films and horror gaming in general. I'm Paul Fricker. I'm Scott Norwood. And I'm Matt Sanderson. And this episode we're talking about Nathan Balingrud's short story, Wild Acre, and how it relates to the way we handle insanity in our games. But before we get into all that, uh, Matt, you had some bad news, I believe, that some you wanted to share. tragic news. <laughs> well, bad for you, maybe. Um... I think bad for humanity in general. Huh. Well, the good fellas over at C is for Cthulhu have just finished uh, the time of recording. Their C is for Cthulhu Plushalooza, I think that is how they called it in the end. I, I, I still really don't think they realise what C is for. <laughs> oh, Cthulhu uh, Plushalooza. Yeah, Plushapalooza. Plushapalooza. It was a bit of a tongue twister. It rolls off the tongue, really. I think the loser is always implicit. A bit like money out of my bank account. They started off by doing a set of three six-inch high little Cthulhu plushies for babies. So you've got the good old stereotypical Cthulhu green, and you've got powder blue and pink. So you've got those for the boys and girls and uh, the tentacle amongst you. Um, but they've extended that I don't, I don't think we should stereotype gender based on the colour of our Cthulhus, though, should we? Oh, given they've got a lot of other colours, I think they're just filling in gaps. Fair enough. Uh, but they've also now that they've got the six-inch one, then they've got the foot one that they have normally, which they've also now done a stars and stripes one for Fourth of July. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> Nothing says America like a stars and stripes Cthulhu. Indeed, uh, they've now also done a jumbo Cthulhu, not the giant Cthulhu because we've already got him. Yeah, um, but one that's two foot high. So you've got the six-inch, the foot, the two foot, and the monster that we terrorise Scott with. <laughs> Just the microphone doesn't pick up the look of disgust. <laughs> why? Why, why? Why must they do this? Why? Apparently I have spare room in my office that needs filling. And you've been leaving the house, Scott, is this true? I, you've been I seen have. leaving the house and boarding a train bound for London? So yes, a few weeks ago I did go down to the London 14 Society event, the Haunted City, Modern Monsters and Urban Myths. And a damn fine day out it was too. It was just really a collection of talks on various themes, but all sort of tied in with the idea of urban myths and, and cities. So it was, you know, things like ghost stories from the underground and bear sightings in Hackney and the legends of Spring Hill Jack and a bit on Slender Man. And there were some particular highlights. I mean, there was one very interesting talk uh, by a former journalist about the legends that grew up around the crying boy pictures in the 1980s in the UK. So th this was a legend that started out from the tabloid press, particularly the Sun newspaper. And the idea that uh, there'd been this rash of, of house fires in which the only thing to survive was these really kind of cheap tatty paintings mm. uh, that were painted in either Italy or Spain of crying boys, crying young children. <laughs> the, the son basically built up this whole story about there being a curse. And this, this ran and ran and ran. It's a bizarre story. I, I mean, there's too much to go into now. I mean, they, this was like a half-hour talk on it. But I, I'll try to put some links in the show notes because it's, it's a bizarre little piece. It sounds like one of those great stories which, when you scratch down, there's actually no evidence whatsoever. Oh, there, there, there's plenty of evidence. Is there, though? But, but there, there's also a perfectly rational explanation. Um, I, I, I went down well, the there. The paintings were made of flame-retardant material? That, that was exactly it. Who would have yes. thought it? Yeah, that was exactly it. Uh, yeah, it took, took me about 30 seconds to suss that as well. <laughs> That's because we're Cthulhu investors, <laughs> yes. Scott. We get this stuff, right? <laughs> Let's see that. I mean, there was another great talk on the vampire rabbit of Newcastle. Could we just cut back to the bear sightings in Hackney? Oh, yeah, yeah. Was it eating a marmalade sandwich? No, no, but but uh, there were... <laughs> I th think it was. But but there were some rather grimmer stories of bears having been found, having been skinned, and their bodies dumped in the canal, which is right. just weird. Yep, that's... And it's happened more than once. Okay. 
But yes, there was the Vampire Rabbit of Newcastle, mm. uh, which is this little gargoyle over a building in Newcastle. And uh, the, the woman who gave the talk has spent about 20 minutes talking about her researches into it, trying to work out why this thing existed, what it represented. And she never did find the truth, but the story of, of all her researches was, it is like a Cthulhu investigator looking into something and just following all these random leads down very, very strange places. And also some late nights watching Monty Python and the Holy Grail. She did, oddly enough, bring that into right. it. Yeah. I thought you were going to say going down the rabbit hole then for a minute. I, I, I should have. That was a wasted opportunity, Matt. I, <laughs> I feel ashamed. The highlight of the whole thing was obviously Justin Woodman's talk on Cthulhu, particularly the crossover between Lovecraft and the occult community. I did speak to Justin for a while afterwards, and I think we've probably got an episode in there somewhere. Later this year, we'll be putting out issue four of The Blasphemous Tome. We'd like to welcome any submissions from listeners, whether it be artwork or written pieces. For more information, please check the website. Without further ado, on to our main topic, Wild Acre by Nathan Ballingrid. I thought this would be an interesting story to talk about uh, following our two recent episodes on Insanity and Call of Cthulhu, because when I read it for the first time last year, I was immediately left with the impression that it did a lot of interesting things in the way that it betrayed, the way that um, someone might react to a, a, the kind of horrific experience a Call of Cthulhu investigator might go through. Nathan Ballingrud is a living author, yes, living, <laughs> and perhaps only the second one we've discussed, and the first that we know, actually listens to this show. Most of his work today involves the intrusion of the preternatural into damaged lives. Yeah, so he's written a lot of short stories, mostly based, what would you say, Scott, in modern-day America for the most yeah. part, and he's published short stories in a collection entitled North American Lake Monsters which won the Shirley Jackson Award for Best Collection in 2013 and a novella, The Visible Filth. His second collection, The Atlas of Hell, is due out next year in 2019. His style seems to be changing. The stories in North American Lake Monsters are very thematically linked, with one exception, but his recent stuff has been more, I'd say, playful. Um, hmm. And yeah, I'm really looking forward to reading Atlas of Hell. This story, Wild Acre, can be found in North American Lake Monsters, as well as Ellen Datlow's Best Horror of the Year, Volume 5, and The Best of the Best Horror of the Year. So now let's have an overview of Wild Acre. Well, we open up at the Wild Acre development site in North Carolina, surrounded by woodland in the shadow of the Blue Ridge Mountains. Jeremy, a construction contractor, is camped out in a partially built house with a couple of his employees, Ronaldo and Dennis. And they're there because there's been a little trouble at the development. The site has been vandalised repeatedly, apparently by eco-terrorists. This has stalled the development project, making it difficult for Jeremy to pay his crew. The night progresses with no sign of the vandals. The three men drink and laugh, trading largely good-natured barbs. And after a while, Jeremy goes to pee in the woods. This is the point where you'd expect he'd be, the, he'd be the first person to get whacked, wouldn't you? Yes. Yeah, yeah. But that's not what happens. As Jeremy pees, he sees a naked young man in the woods who grins at him in a rather alarming way. I guess having a random naked stranger walk up to you and grin would be fairly alarming, you know, at the best of times, in the woods, in the dark. Yeah, so the man suddenly bounds off and Jeremy drunkenly tries to pull his flies up and, and runs off and, and calls to the others back at the house. Jeremy's anger and frustration have been building all evening. He's been worried that he might lash out at Dennis. Now he is exalted to have a proper outlet for his violent impulses. Once he gets close to the house, however, Jeremy realises something is wrong. He hears Dennis scream and then he hears something else. A heavy, tearing, like ripping canvas, followed by a liquid sound of dropped weight of moist, heavy objects sliding to the ground. He catches a glimpse of motion, something huge and fast in the house, and then an inverted leg standing out suddenly like a dark rip in the bright flank of stars. And then nothing. A high, keening wail, ephemeral, barely audible, rises from the unfinished house like a wisp of smoke. 
Once he's in a position to see what's happening, Jeremy catches sight of the butchered form of Dennis, organs spread everywhere, but Dennis is still alive. There is a dog-like humanoid figure, shaggy, furry, bent over Ronaldo, crushing his head into the wooden floor. Dennis begs Jeremy to shoot the creature. Jeremy runs back to his pickup truck, where his rifle is stored, but once there, he jumps into the cab and starts the engine. He catches the last glimpse of the creature, tearing into Ronaldo as he drives off at speed. Now, even though it's never mentioned in the story by name, I mean, this creature is very obviously from the description of what's happened, a werewolf. And I did read a, an interview with Spelling Road a little while back. He mentioned that it could very easily have been a story about a bear attack in the woods or something like that. It didn't necessarily have to have this supernatural element. But on the other hand, he said that he wanted to write a story with a werewolf in it. And I think that's a damn good reason. It didn't actually twig with me until much nearer the end that that was what it was. Oh, wow. Because I didn't realise that the grinning figure in the woods was the same figure that was ripping the people apart because it seemed Ah. to... It's like suddenly the guy's in front of him and then he's behind him ripping him up. It seemed to too close to be to the same being oh wow i saw I, I was expecting some freaky occurrence of this naked kid coming out of the woods again or appearing somewhere else in the story yeah i thought maybe a ghoul so they were kind of a bit dog-like but it wasn't it's not clear it's a mm. werewolf we jump forward six months jeremy is sitting in a diner with his wife tara who is telling him about tim a teacher she works with who keeps flirting with her she says i want him to see you at the christmas party get all alpha male on him Squeeze his hand really hard when you shake it or something. That's, that's one of the things I really like about this. It's those little subtle hints to think back to dog. Yeah. Mm. Yeah, there's a lot of very carefully chosen language in this mm-hmm. story. Jeremy is distracted, unsettled by the gangly, hairy young busboy working at the diner. Part of his mind is still reliving the final horror he saw in his rearview mirror. The developer of Wild Acre has gone bankrupt and the site is now abandoned. Jeremy has been unable to find work since. We learn that the deaths of Dennis and Ronaldo have been ascribed to a wolf attack. Jeremy obviously knows otherwise, but he's not admitted this to anyone. He won't even use the name of the creature. Well, he got the last bit of it. Yeah. Werewolf. <laughs> yes. But it's interesting that this is a werewolf story that never once uses the word werewolf. It's something we perhaps see quite a lot in media these days, like zombie stories, like, say, The Walking Dead, that never uses the word zombie. Sometimes it seems quite coy. In this case, it seems to be very much a product of Jeremy's denial. We cut back to the funerals of Ronaldo and Dennis. At Ronaldo's funeral, Jeremy discovers how little he knew about the man. He didn't even know that Ronaldo was married. Ronaldo's brother-in-law politely confronts Jeremy about outstanding pay owed to Ronaldo's widow. He then asks why Jeremy didn't shoot the wolf. All Jeremy can offer is an excuse about how fast everything happened. The brother-in-law suggests that Jeremy leave, telling him how hard it is for people there to see him. On the other hand, Dennis's funeral is a very different affair. Dennis's widow and his children seem too shocked to do more than hug Jeremy. Moving back to the present... Dennis has a nightmare in which he sees the boy in the woods, twitching and cracking, exploding into blood. And this is one of the things in the story that quite impressed me. I had fairly mild PTSD some time back. I got uh, attacked when I was living in Dundee and I had the shit kicked out of me. I got really quite badly hurt. And for quite some time afterwards, I had the most horrific nightmares in which I was reliving the incident. But it wasn't like a direct replay of the incident. It was always subtle differences, different people being involved, different locations, you know, uh, being stabbed instead of being beaten up. And it was a terrifying, visceral experience. But it was that constant reinvention of it. And seeing this in the story where, you know, it, it is sort of the essence of what happened, but at the same time it's something completely different, just rang completely true with me. Jeremy wakes up, slowly realising that he has wet the bed. Tara changes the sheets and almost turns on him in anger when he tries to help. She calms quickly, though, and tells him to go and take a shower. He sits on the floor of the shower, hugging his knees. We flash back to two months after the funerals. Dennis's widow, Rebecca, asks Jeremy to come over. He finds the family packing all their possessions. The bank has foreclosed on their house and they need to be out by the weekend. Rebecca spells it out plainly to Jeremy. 
She and, and her family have no money, and their only extended family can't take them in. His guts twisting with guilt, Jeremy explains that he can't help them. He's heavily in debt himself, has no income, and, and can't offer them a roof. Rebecca loses her temper, threatening to sue Jeremy. Jeremy says that she should sue him if it would help, but Rebecca admits that it won't. Telling the story of the sheriff's deputy who came to serve the eviction notice, Rebecca collapses into tears while Jeremy looks on helplessly. Back in the present, Jeremy and Tara are getting ready to go to a Christmas party hosted by one of Tara's colleagues. Jeremy supposed that a Christmas party full of elementary school professionals might be the worst place in the world. He would drift among them helplessly, like a grizzly bear in a room full of children, expected not to eat anyone. In addition, Jeremy is ashamed by the weight he has put on since becoming unemployed. He marvels at how unselfconscious Tara is. Tara confronts Jeremy and talks him into going. Once at the party, Jeremy doesn't know anyone there and finds himself undergoing sensory overload. That sounds like me at a party most times, let alone in this kind of context. Yeah, yeah. I mean, if you're in a slightly broken state of mind, a party is one of the worst places on earth you can be. He measured time in drinks, and then he lost track of it. The lights and the sounds were beginning to blur into a candy-hued miasma that threatened to drown him. He'd become stationary in the middle of the living room, people and conversations revolving around him like the spokes of some demented Ferris wheel. Jeremy is rattled after overhearing a conversation about a morbid child who draws severed heads and pushes his way through the crowd. When the hostess wishes him a Merry Christmas, Jeremy pretends to be Jewish to shut her up. Eventually, Jeremy meets Tim. Tim tries to be friendly, gossiping about the school. Everybody here is scared shitless. The fucking legislature is throwing us to the wolves. Who cares about education, right? And... This is a tipping point in the story, and you hear a lot of people use the word triggered, sometimes in the right way, sometimes in a very mocking way, and sometimes in just an incorrect way these days. Triggered started off meaning something very specific, that if someone's got PTSD, there can be certain things, certain... It's not even just necessarily a direct relationship to the incident that gave them PTSD in the first place or the circumstances, but just something associated with it. It can be a smell, an image, uh, anything, but it's something that suddenly makes them relive that experience. And just in that line there, you're throwing us to the wolves, bang, it's there. Tim tells Jeremy that he envies him for marrying Tara and for working with his hands. When Tim offers sympathies about what happened at Wild Acre, Jeremy snaps. Tara reads Jeremy's body language and steps in to calm things down. It almost works, but Jeremy switches tack to If you touch my wife one more, more time, I'll break your goddamn arm. And then, with the same kind of joyous violence that he felt at Wild Acre, Jeremy punches Tim in the mouth as hard as he can, knocking over a manger display in the process. There are screams, and some other men grapple Jeremy into submission. Tara defends her husband when someone threatens to call the police. She leads him outside to the truck and drives them home. They talk, a breaking point coming when Tara asks Jeremy why he told her hostess that they were Jewish. He can't answer. Tara sobbed once, both hands still clutching the steering wheel. Her face was twisted in misery. You have to get a hold of yourself, she said. I don't know what's happening to you. I don't know what to do. Back at home, they descend into silence. Unable to take it, Jeremy jumps into the truck and drives speeding into the night recklessly. He turns onto the dirt track onto Wild Acre, still going too fast, bouncing down the road and eventually crashes the truck into a ditch. The headlights pick out the frames of the unfinished houses, Jeremy sobs behind the wheel. He scrambles out of the car and retrieves the rifle from the back. The gun is slippery in his hands. He strides into the house frame and raises the gun to his chin, aiming it into the dark forest, staring down the sight. The world and its sounds retreat into a single point of stillness. He watches and waits. Come on! he screams. Come on! Come on! But nothing comes. Like a lot of the stories in North American Lake Monsters, there isn't a neat resolution to this story. There's a very strong emotional resolution, but there isn't necessarily the expected narrative resolution. And 
I think this is one of the things that makes the story and and a lot of the other stories in this collection so unsettling, that you don't get that kind of release. That I mean, if this were a Call of Cthulhu scenario, you might expect to have some big final confrontation with the creature at the end. But you know, instead, you have a broken man just shouting into the night, knowing that he'll never get his life back. That, to me, is far more horrific. Now we have a look at what we can steal for gaming from Wildacre. Picking titles for whether it be a short story or, or a novel or a scenario, I guess is always an interesting thing. But it occurs to me, you know, Wildacre is an intriguing title. You know, I guess that's the place where these houses were going to be built, the Wildacre. Uh, on the other hand, more than that? On the other hand, Nathan could have called the housing development anything he wanted and taken the, the story title from that. So that's a deliberate choice. It suggests... Not just the, the wilderness setting of it and the intrusion of something that's almost from nature, but not quite, but also the wildness of Jeremy. How might we reflect upon this situation in gaming? Because it is very different in that it starts off with us seeing a monster and then the rest of the story, we don't see the monster ever again. So it's like if this were a film, you'd see the monster about 10 minutes in and then the rest of the you know, an hour and 20 minutes of running time would be just real-life repercussions of the trauma he suffered during that initial scene, which is quite an unusual structure, whether it be for a film or a game. Yeah, I don't think I've ever seen that in a, a horror story or a horror film before. Again, that's something that really drew me to this story and that it was something I'd just never seen before. And I think one of the markers of a great story is something that seems obvious in retrospect, but if we wanted to do something like that in our games, how might we approach that in a game? I mean, I wouldn't really see it becoming a game in itself. I wouldn't really want to present a scenario, I think, where the supernatural occurs in the first, say, 15 minutes, and then it's like a three or four hour game, and then we don't get back to the supernatural. But I think in our horror games, by default, we always end up encountering the supernatural at some point. And then incorporating this approach to our investigators would be interesting, I think. So what happens between the chapters of, say, a campaign? We talked about Master and Alatep recently, to take that as an example. The characters suffer some hugely, what I would imagine would be traumatic things at the conclusion of some of those chapters. But then there's a, a period of travelling, perhaps, to a different continent. There might be weeks that pass until they start the next chapter. And rather than just brushing over that, can we play around with some of those things? Well, I think we can even go one stage beyond that. It's something that I've always been drawn to in role-playing games, and I, I must admit I don't do as much of it as I'd like, is seeing the mundane parts of player characters' lives, as well as all these world-shaking events and these adventures and these horrors, seeing how they then interact with the real world in between that, the, the people in their lives, their loved ones, their jobs, just the mundane parts of human existence. I think Call of Cthulhu actually offers a good opportunity for doing that in the backstory connections, where by spending time with them between chapters of a campaign, between scenarios, you actually get that chance to get sanity back. And I remember when I was running The Two-Headed Serpent, our friend Alina, she played this socialite who basically had a bit of a, I was about to say tragic backstory, but it, it wasn't tragic for her, it was tragic for the people around her. Basically, she slept with her sister's fiancé just before they were supposed to get married, and this had put a huge rift in the family. And so every time we had a gap in between chapters, we'd go and we'd catch up with how her family was developing and her trying to make amends and, you know, she'd roll dice and things would go horribly wrong and the situation would go out of control. And then at the same time, she was worried about intrusions of the horrific sides of the campaign on there and she was trying to warn them and save them, but they were trying to shut her out. And so it created this odd combination of an almost soap opera dynamic with horror tensions in there that felt very different than the rest of the campaign and utterly refreshing. Something that's often brushed over in games is something as mundane as financial considerations, uh, because often that's not the focus of the game. But if you're playing a more prolonged game, it can be interesting to incorporate those things. 
going back to what we talked about, survival horror, you know, those resource management things, and they are stuck with cash. How are they going to get from America to Britain? What deals do they have to cut? Who do they have to owe a favour to? If, well, if they do just get a job in the local supermarket, I guess you just <laughs> fast forward, but, you know, try and do something more interesting. But if they're on a timetable and the fate of the world is at stake, yeah, you know, what, what are they going to do to get their money or what are they going to do in order to get the resources? Um, you know, are they going to stow away on a ship if they can't afford that? Or if they take a suitcase full of cash to smuggle a bunch of illegal items or something like that, if you can put something in their lap that is very tempting but could get them in trouble. Related to that as well, one of the things that we don't necessarily play up in our Call of Cthulhu games is the consequences of long-term indefinite insanity. All right, the investigator might have a chance to recover that between chapters. But again, if they're relying on work to actually bring that money in, that insanity might make it difficult for them to work. If they uh, rely on the backstory connections in order to regain that sanity, and they start filling those sand rolls, we start seeing those connections breaking down. And this can mirror the effect that you know people going through real trauma and handling it badly can go through one thing that i know when we've touched upon is that there are very deliberate and precise choices of language in the story that evoke connections with wolves dogs the sounds that he heard putting him back in that moment that caused him so much trouble it does remind me a bit of some of the thought process that went behind some of the GM advice that's with the new edition of Cult, that they suggest that scenarios have a particular theme and that there are various motifs that you cite, that you signal or st uh, stage through the scenario that keep reinforcing that theme. Yeah, and there's the same thing in Unknown Armies as well, hmm. where they, they suggest coming up with certain motifs and repeating those through the, the scenario. Yeah, to give it to kind of bring that uh, to bring that theme home and make it a more powerful piece. I think that it's a similar thing here, that you could craft responses and ways to describe things after an encounter with, let's say, a ghoul, because it's the closest thing to the werewolf here, to say, reinforce those uh, dog motifs, that snarling, teeth, even meat on the plate, or while someone's cooking a steak, for example, like the, the dead meat in the pan. Or even more subtle things that, you know, you're walking down the street and the drains are backed up, and just the smell coming from the drains for a moment has that slight smell of rot to it that takes you straight back to the graveyard. Yeah, think things like that. It's, it's almost good advice that you can riff on here that consider the monster or the adversary you're using in a scenario and then think about the implication of what happens afterwards, things that you could bring in to bring that slight twist of description that wasn't there before that can yeah. steer it back towards things like the graveyard stench, the tunnel underground, the howl of the dog off in the distance. Yeah. What, what's on the menu tonight? Not calamari again! <laughs> <laughs> The big thing in this story, I guess, is PTSD. Is that a, something we can bring into our games, the after effects of that? I mean, I guess this comes from, a in Call of Cthulhu, a failed sanity role. We don't really have the in-game descriptor term of PTSD, but the effects thereof can be mirrored in the game, I think. Yeah, I... I guess it depends on how you interpret the mechanics. You could almost play up some PTSD effects in the same way as you might handle delusions during a bout of insanity, where it's just misinterpretations of things or overreactions to things. Or no, no, not overreactions, but triggers. But also the nightmares, just the sort of random intrusions of thoughts. It's a more subtle, pernicious thing than perhaps the the grand delusions that you might be tempted to throw in. But sometimes subtlety can be far more unsettling than you know, a punch in the face. Is there any advice we can offer to players on how to portray their character once they're suffering from this kind of condition, how they might bring those things into play because it's on the shoulders of the keeper and we talk about gm advice quite a lot but what about what advice if any can we offer to a player on how to portray this i think that's a really difficult question mm. i think we did, we touched on a bit of this when we did the insanity episodes that players around the table might not necessarily realize the intricacies of such mental conditions that they're being asked to portray without doing some research ahead of playing the game. And even then, that can be a bit of a signpost to say that, oh, this stuff's going to come up in the game. It almost becomes a bit of a spoiler. So it's, it's a really difficult line to walk. But I guess the thing about anger being close to the surface, 
which is very much portrayed in Jeremy's character. And rereading the story, it was evident how close that was to the surface at the start of the story and how also it describes him as being very overweight at the start of the story. But later on in the story, after the event, you know, months later, suddenly his weight is a problem on his mind and his anger, even though it was close to the surface before, now that's a problem. So it's like he hasn't really changed. It's like the surface has been rubbed away and all these things are more exposed now. So it's the way of playing your character in a more direct and reactionary way in some aspects. That dial suddenly goes up to 11. Yeah, the, it, I mean, it depends on what condition you're portraying, but I don't think it's particularly good advice ever to play a withdrawn, depressed character because then as a player you sit there and not really saying anything, right? But playing a character who is you know, more on the edge, more closer to that hair trigger of anger or expression is, is a more interesting thing to portray. It's not just an interesting thing to portray, but it also potentially makes interesting things happen. Hmm. If you react disproportionately to bad situations and escalate to violence inappropriately, for example, then this is going to produce all sorts of complications for your character. It depends on the GM and the group and the scenario and the setting. It's not a lot of fun if you sort of say, right, at this stage my character loses it and punches someone in the face and then you spend the next few months in prison. But on the other hand, if it then has all sorts of social repercussions or affects your character's relationships with the people around them, then suddenly you've brought a whole load of interesting trouble into the game. And I can imagine in the scene where Jeremy's at the party and he gets, well, one might call it provoked by the uh, the other guy, Tim. In a game, Jeremy is suffering from indefinite insanity, I guess, because it's six months after the event. Then he's subject to delusions. I can imagine the NPC mentions something about wolves and you know he catches something under the table out of his eye, perhaps as the delusion presented by the, the keeper. Is it a wolf? I mean, maybe it's just the pet dog or something like that, but just that that mention of wolves might trigger off that uh, momentary uh, flash of recall because the player might not pick up that. Going back to this idea of the fact that this didn't necessarily need to be a werewolf story, I see every now and then people writing Call of Cthulhu scenarios that don't contain any supernatural elements. Oh, certainly don't contain any mythos elements, but, but you know, let, let's say no supernatural elements at all. Do we think that uh, we can still make those as horrific? It strikes me that so much of the horror in this story comes from other sources, and it's got me thinking as to how I'd bring that kind of horror into a game. I think you probably could do it, but would I want to do it? Probably not. That is a valid point. I mean... You know, we, we tend to put these elements into the stories because we're interested in them, because they're the, the toys we want to play with. But it did get me thinking as to how much I could strip that back, you know, what the important parts of the horror are. I mean, I'm just watching, and I highly recommend Ken Burns's documentary about the Vietnam War, which is on Netflix. And the wonderful thing about that series is, of course, that many of the people that fought in the Vietnam War are still alive. So we've actually got first-hand accounts. And it's pretty clear that several decades on, many of them are still suffering from the effects of that. I mean, one guy was saying how his kids were being weaned off of their nightlight, but they were asking why he still had one. Oh, gosh. I mean, that's pretty terrifying. He said he, you know, he can't have the light out anymore. And they got numerous people talking about the horrors of not really the direct horrors of the, you know, the gore and so on, but just the fear of one guy was just talking about the fear of walking because it was just it wasn't like the fear of going into battle. It was just the constant fear of any moment something could happen. Wow. That's going to change your thing. And because there's always a subjective thing. Some people are going to be traumatized for life by that and some people are going to get over it. But how do you put that into a game? I think real-life things based on that sort of horror are a lot more difficult to communicate because a monster or a supernatural thing, we can imagine that in our bedroom, you know, the monster under the bed. And we can imagine people, I guess, mundane, a house invasion or something, people breaking in or, or a car accident. But those are relatively 
mundane things. It's kind of hard to communicate that sense of horror that those things really bring. Yeah, it's it's interesting that that you bring up war as a um, an example there, because I, I remember having some fairly long conversations with Keeper Chad from the Miskatonic University when we worked together on our American cousins for World War Cthulhu, and certainly for the World War Cthulhu Cold War line in general, there was this feeling that that I kept getting and that that Chad got after that that the real horrors we were dealing with there, the historical horrors that we kept digging up was so much worse than any mythos bits that we could put in that by turning it into a normal horror game, it felt like we were diluting it. Mm. Yeah, because those are real things that are really... Well, you know, there are things as bad as anyone can imagine. And monsters and so on, you know, they've got a bit of gloss to them. It's hard to... I guess with any of these things, it's hard to really make it terrifying in a story at the table. It was me also that I find that adding those kind of elements into it makes it more of a game and gives it that divorce from the real world, which is exactly what I want from gaming. If I want the real world, I just turn on the TV or I go to work. I don't want it to be too realistic because that's the complete antithesis of what I want from a game. I think we want a sense of wonder and escape. I, I don't know. I know. I, I... I like provocative games. I like games that make me feel things. And, the, I mean, that doesn't necessarily rely on supernatural elements. It's something that I keep wondering about, which is why there are so few role-playing games out there that don't have any weird any, elements. Yeah. You know, the vast majority of them are fantasy, science fiction, or horror. There obviously are exceptions, but they're in the minority. Considering the larger fiction landscape does not represent this in any way... That always strikes me as an, an interesting disparity. Why are we drawn to these things for games specifically? Final question I just wanted to ask. As I mentioned earlier, this doesn't have a nice, neat narrative conclusion, perhaps. Or at least not the kind of narrative conclusion we'd expect from a story like this. It, certainly it's, it's something I'm a big fan of doing in my games. Do you two ever do that? or is I'm never quite sure whether it's just me that does this and sort of leaves lots of things dangling. Um, you know, deliberately to, to create that sense of horror? Not necessarily to create a sense of horror. I think I, sometimes I leave stuff open for like the potential sequel or almost get the players thinking, well, what could happen if this spins off into this direction? And so it just it's more of an imaginative tool than a, one strictly for horror. And I think sometimes it's just out of necessity as well because unless you're driving it towards some preordained climax then it tends to end perhaps chaotic and in different ways for different characters and in an unexpected way. And perhaps that's the end and some people have survived and some people have died and some people have flared away. And it's like, well, that's kind of the end of the story. So maybe just do an epilogue and sort of say what happens to your character and what happens to your character. But actually, Scott, I wonder, you talk about this story not resolving i think it does resolve i mean he goes back where the story started with him actually getting his gun out now yeah in a way that he didn't at first he doesn't confront the werewolf again but he's back there and the end is that he's never going to find it well i mean that's why i was talking about a you know a, a, an emotional resolution rather than a traditional narrative resolution because i think that is a very contained story it, it ends on an emotional peak and, you know, that's something I want from my games. If I'm running particularly a one-shot, I will generally try to find a sort of peak emotional moment and end, end it there. I mean, that doesn't mean there's a climactic fight or whether, you know, all the secrets come out or, you know, whether the, the big thing that it was building towards ever actually happens on screen. I'm quite happy with a lot of that stuff being implied as long as I leave it on that moment where all the players are just going, oh, wow, okay, that was intense. Yeah, I certainly remember years ago, like playing with one particular GM, and often a lot of the stuff wasn't exposed. People afterwards would be like, "What? What was going on there?" And he'd just <laughs> sort of say, "Well, you just have to make it up for yourselves, won't you?" <laughs> I don't know if that was good or bad, but that was his approach. It also strikes me the ending has been a particularly, again, reinforcing the real world and realistic aspect of it. Because hmm. it would be, oh, just so happened to be a coincidence that the one night he chose to go back up there, the werewolf would be there for him to shoot. Yes. As if he'd been sat on his ass waiting for the last six months, waiting for the bloody moron <laughs> to turn back up with a gun. Yeah, I agree. I agree. That would have been a shit ending. And I'm really glad the story doesn't end like that. I think it would have been a, a much, much weaker story. But it just strikes me as being 
perhaps comparatively unusual that it does end in this way, which is you know one of the many reasons why I love this story. It, it breaks with tradition in a lot of ways, and that is, it is just reinforces realism all the way through. I think it's pretty clear Nathan just ran out of special effects budget and he just spent it all in the first scene. <laughs> thank you, thank you, thank you. Well, once again, we would like to thank people. We would like to thank quite a lot of people. First of all, let's thank everyone who, on an ongoing basis, gives us money via Patreon. Uh, This money pays for the podcast. It keeps us going. It makes all of this possible. So thank you to each and every one of you. And we have a bunch of new people to thank. Yes, coming in at the $1 level, we have a big thanks going out to Howard Bishop. Thank you very much, Howard. Indeed. Thanks, Howard. Next up, we have a really short name. David. Thank you very much, David. Thank you very much, David. Thank you, David. And thanks to Kelly Hoy. Thank you, Kelly. Indeed. Thank you very much, Kelly. And also thanks to Sven Soren Vitter. I hope I'm pronouncing your name correctly. Indeed. Thank you very much, Sven Soren. Yes. Thank you, Sven Soren. And going up to the $3 level, we've got drinks ready to say cheers to Trev Boyd. So thank you very much and cheers, Trev. Thank you and cheers, Trev. Cheers, Trev. And thank you and cheers to the wonderfully named Anonymous Podcast Listener. Representing all the anonymous podcast listeners out there. No, it's a particular anonymous podcast listener, Scott. Yeah, but but they're anonymous. How can we tell? They are the anonymous listener. Oh, yeah, that's true. Yeah, it is a definite article, isn't it? No. No, it isn't. (laughs) No, it isn't. Okay, well, (laughs) well, thank you and cheers anyway. Thank you, Anonymous. Cheers, Anonymous. And thank you to Stephen Milkowski. Indeed, thank you very much, Stephen. Yes, thank you and cheers, Stephen. And also a thanks and cheers go out to Jonathan Jessen. And again, I'm hoping I've got the name right there. Yes, thank you and cheers, Jonathan. And thank you, Jonathan. And now we move on to the more frightening part of our thanks. That, that terrible, terrible part where we break into song. One day, they're going to come for us, you know. They might be the authorities. They might be the people in white coats. But they will come. But these are the $5 backers. We have a couple of new $5 backers whose names we are going to defile through song. And our first song goes out to Perry Mihalikos. Thank you and beware. Thank you very much, Perry. Brace yourself, Perry. And our next song goes out to Duncan McMillan. Thank you, Duncan. Indeed, thank you very much, Duncan. Thank you, Duncan. And we hope you like this. Stay on the path, Duncan. Duncan McMillan, Duncan McMillan. Thank you. Thank you. Where are you? Thank you, Duncan. Are you there, Duncan? McMillan. Thank you. Meanwhile, on social media... And we have a new iTunes review from Jules Alex L. Thoroughly addictive material. A good test of a podcast is, in my view, that after getting used to the voices of the hosts, would you like to sit in a pub with these guys for an evening's banter? I, I, I'm sorry, I, is anyone actually getting used to our voices? Uh, that's... that's. Um, I'm not. No, I, I, I've, I've listened to most of the episodes of the podcast now and I'll never get used to them. In the case of the good friends of Jackson Elias, there's a most definite yes. These guys are erudite, funny, and generally great company on my drives to and from work. On the subject of which, 
It's well recorded and produced, meaning that the car engine rumble doesn't disrupt things, very important for my listening habits, a hugely enjoyable back catalogue of incisive and entertaining discussion for anyone interested in Cthulhu or horror. Highly recommended. Oh, that was absolutely lovely. Thank you very much, Jules. Hey, hey. And if anyone else does fancy leaving a review for us on on iTunes or wherever it is you get your podcast from, we would be extremely grateful. And this is how other people find the podcast, uh, so it's it's just wonderful. So thank you. We've also had some feedback on our episode about building player engagement. Shane McLean over on G Plus says, as a GM typically has more workload, the players need to help keep the GM engaged too. They have a responsibility to create and play interesting characters, or to try their pre-gens out for size as proactively as they can, to interact with the world in a game-positive manner, and to take a shared ownership of the pace and tone of the game. Hallelujah! I could not agree with this more strongly. This is something I've probably railed against so many times in previous episodes, but I really struggle as a GM with passive players, and... I'm willing to do a lot of the work myself, but I really do expect the players to meet me halfway. If your character is going to spend all their time running away from what's going on and hiding or not engaging with things because that's what their character would do, then after a while, I'm just going to ignore you. I call the police. I've had the experience years ago at Gen Con in London, which, you know, that dates my comment, of running a game for a bunch of people I didn't know at the con, and there was two of them, as I sort of gave out the papers and turned around and got my folder out of my bag and come back to the table, and they're chattering away, and I'm like, can you sort of finish your chat because I want to get on and run the game? And then I realised they're talking to each other in character already. <laughs> I'm like, I hardly dare interrupt them because I'm just not used to this kind of behaviour. Um, but yeah, they just got totally into it, which is marvellous. And from Edwin Nagy on G+. One small trick that I've found successful as both player and GM for con games is having or giving some quick customization options to the pregens. Whether it's choosing spells or a magic item in a D&D style game, or spending those last so many skill points, or even choosing a name, this can provide some early buy-in. I would say choosing a name, if you're going to choose a name, put a few prompts on there, because choosing a name can be dreadfully difficult. And people can just spend a lot of time just dithering. But I, I really like the idea of customising your character, saying, you know, you've got 40 more points to spend, put them where you like, that yeah. kind of thing. Yeah, I, I think that's a really good idea, and it's something I'm terrible about doing. It's something that never occurs to me when I'm running a game, and I probably should. Yeah, and Matt, you can choose whatever make of dynamite you want. <laughs> write it. <laughs> write it on the sheet. I'll just have 106. Yeah. I do a little bit of that, actually, with um, getting players to roll luck. So rather than me decide what they yeah. start with, I always get them to roll it. So then I don't get blamed for who gets <laughs> And our friend Frank Delventhal over on G Plus says, well, I think we've answered this already, but <laughs> what about more singing? And have you considered an opera Patreon backer level? No way, no way, no fucking way! <laughs> <laughs> well, I don't think any of us can actually well i don't know matt has got quite a good voice but i think we can't really sing that well uh, no I, an I, opera singing is probably <laughs> a little beyond our pay grade well i don't know i, I think you don't know what don't you know <laughs> what, what i think <laughs> I, I think we are just the people to produce the operatic equivalent of the king in yellow <laughs> that, that we could produce an opera that is so sanity blasting that it tears a hole in reality itself what back a um, level would that be scott 10 bucks well, that was most opera. Certainly sanity-shattering on various levels for me anyway. Oh, Matt. I've had to sit through at least one before. How at least one. <laughs> <laughs> and to wrap up, what are our final thoughts about Wild Acre? I can appreciate the story on quite a few levels, as I said. From a technical perspective, the choice of language in particular is one thing I really did like about it. But as I alluded to in some comments, the fact that it's a very real story in a lot of respects, that's a bit of a turn-off for me. Um, I read fiction to be, again, a bit like my gaming. I try to get away from the real world. It does a very good job of being very realistic, and that immediately made it very dull for me. Right, so you were looking for something more fantastical, 
supernatural um, escapist, perhaps. Exactly that. Yeah, yeah, there's certainly nothing escapist about it. No, so I, I can totally appreciate it as a as a piece. I think it's very well constructed. I think it's very well written. It's just not the thing for me. It's, it would not be on my preferred reading list because of those reasons. Hmm. Yeah, on the other hand, I, I think it's one of my favourite horror stories, certainly of recent years. Um, but I loved North American Lake Monsters as a whole when I read it last year. I thought it was simply the best short story collection I'd read since I was probably in my 20s. There were a few stories that were real standouts, and Wild Acre certainly leapt out at me. It just brought into focus so much of what had been bouncing around in my mind about the way we portray insanity or mental illness or PTSD or whatever in role-playing games. And while I don't think you know, it necessarily presents a model of how I'd want to do it in every game or perhaps even exactly in any game, it certainly gave me so much food for thought. Yeah, I mean, I'd agree. It was a, a very good story in a good collection of stories. So I would commend North American Lake Monsters to the listeners. And I know you wrote about the collection in the Blasphemous Tome issue three, I think, yes. Scott, last, yes, at the end of last year. It's a, yeah, it is a good collection of very punchy short stories, which I enjoyed reading all of them. And I'd say this one was one of my favourites uh, in the collection. And one thing I would say to you, Matt, is uh, having read one of Nathan's more recent stories, uh, slightly more recent, which I believe is going to be in The Atlas of Hell, a story called Skull Pocket, is that he, that he does do stuff that is unlike the content of North American Lake Monsters. Uh, Skull Pocket is, I think, much more in your wheelhouse. It's a, a very playful, but at the same time, very dark story that's I mean, it's, it's almost got a sort of Charles Adams, uh, Adams-ish vibe to it. It's about a, a small town that holds an annual festival, but some years ago it was taken over by Gauls, and they brought their own religion into the town, and it sort of shaped the culture of the town. And it's kind of ghoulish fun. No uh, pun intended there at all. No, mm. none at all. And it'd be remiss of us not to mention that one of the stories in the collection does have a Lovecraftian connection. Oh, yes. The crevasse, which is set in the Antarctic. Make the connection for yourself. So, yeah, there's a, there's a definite Lovecraft uh, link there. Well, I think that brings us to the end of the episode. Uh, so until next time, it's a good night from me. Cheerio from me. And farewell from me. Blasphemous Tomes.com mm-hmm.